in verses 15 through 31. And again, we're in the farewell discourse, which is Jesus' conversation with his disciples on the night before his death. And the disciples are troubled. Jesus keeps telling them he's leaving them. So Jesus begins chapter 14 by comforting his disciples, by calling them to believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life, which is what we saw last week. And now in verses 15 through 31, he comforts them by teaching them of the coming of the Spirit, who will be with them forever and will be in them. And since he is the Spirit of truth, who guides us into all truth, Let's begin by asking his help as we come to our passage. Please pray with me. Holy Spirit, I need your help and we need your help. The goal of this time is to have our hearts transformed by the world, but that's something a preacher cannot do. It's something we can't even do in ourselves. Please open up our eyes to the glory of Christ. Comfort us with the truth of your presence forever. Give us peace and make us holy. All for the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tomorrow, on the 25th, we celebrate Emmanuel, which means God with us. As God the Son came to dwell with sinners like us. But in our passage today, Jesus says that what's even better than that is to have God in us. He describes how God the Holy Spirit will be sent to dwell not just with us, but actually dwell in those who love and obey Christ. But I think if many of us are honest, the thought of Jesus coming to dwell with us is really exciting, and we don't really know what to do with the Spirit coming to dwell in us. We love Christmas. We love to sing these Christmas hymns just like I do, but there's not too many songs about the coming of the Holy Spirit. His coming is just as incredible news for those who love Christ, and as we're going to see today, Believers, so often, it's, it's good news the Spirit's coming because we so often want good things, but we're powerless to do them or powerless to receive them. So whoever you are, you need the Spirit to be with you and to be in you. And so it should be no surprise that in our passage today, Jesus comforts his disciples with the truth of the coming of the Spirit. And my prayer is that this will comfort you too, and it will cause your heart to rejoice. And so, again, in John chapter 14, Jesus teaches that, here's our main idea, he teaches that if you love Christ, his leaving and the Spirit's coming is good news, first, because it means the Spirit will dwell in you, in verses 15 through 17. And again, Jesus begins by clarifying who these promises apply to. So look down at verse 15. He says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is who he's talking to. And I'm really thankful for Scripture because it's so balanced. Last week, we learned all about the importance of knowing and believing in Jesus. And you may have left thinking, wow, 
it really matters what I believe, but I guess it doesn't really matter who I love or what I do. But Jesus comes back and tells us, no, it's love and obedience. He repeats that phrase again and again. If you love him, you will keep his commandments. But I think the order of these passages is very intentional. First comes belief, then comes love, and finally obedience through the Spirit. I regularly, I work a lot with the youth and the kids, and I regularly tell all of our volunteers, this is our goal for our children's ministry. Maybe you're curious what our goal is. Our goal is to help the kids know, love, and follow Jesus. And I tell them the order of that phrase is intentional. Our relationship with God must begin with belief in Christ. Not just at salvation, but throughout our Christian life. It always begins with belief. And as we grow to know and believe him, we grow to love him. And Jesus says here, that love will always show itself in obedience. These are not like steps you check off a list of your Christian life. Instead, it's kind of like the ever-flowing cascade of the Christian life. It always begins with believing Christ, knowing him, and then loving him and keeping his commandments. Every drop begins with belief. And Jesus says here, there is no obedience, true obedience, that does not flow out of a heart of love. And so it's that type of person that all of these blessings apply to. So with each of our main points, I hope you'll pay attention. Each phrase opens, if you love Christ... All these blessings apply to you. It's only for those who love Christ, meaning only for genuine believers. They do not apply to the Judases of the world who hang around Jesus but show they don't love him because they don't obey him and they don't follow him. But instead it applies to the genuine disciples who, like the 11 disciples, with much failings and setbacks, love Jesus and seek to obey him. And to be clear, this love and obedience is not conjured up on our own. This is the work of God in us. We're like a branch that's attached to the vine. Apart from Christ and the Spirit, we can do nothing. And Scott is out here somewhere getting nervous because this is exactly what he's preaching on next week. And so instead of stealing all of Scott's thunder, I will just tell you, come back next week and hear Scott teach on John 15, which shows that obedience and love is the work of God in us, of us abiding in Christ. And that is what produces the obedience and love, not us in our own strength. But today, let's get back to it looking at the blessing of the Spirit to those who love and obey Christ. Look down at verse 16. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. All right, so just once again, notice who this promise is for. It cannot be for the world. And that word world, John uses it all the time. It's referring to the sinful society, this group of people on earth who've skipped the first step of knowing and believing in Christ. And since they don't know God, since they don't know the Spirit, they cannot receive the Spirit. Again, the Christian life begins with faith. So instead, 
Jesus is speaking to the eleven disciples and tells them that the Father is going to send them another helper. So he is the first helper. He is going to send another helper to be with them forever, which must have been such encouraging news because think back to what they're experiencing. Jesus is just telling them he is leaving them. They're distraught. They're troubled at this. And now he tells them the comforting truth. The Holy Spirit is coming to be with you forever and to be in you. And even though this promise has been spoken directly to the 11 disciples, it applies to all who trust in Christ, all genuine believers today. Ever since their faith in Christ, believers have the Spirit in them. And I want to point out, it might be on the screen here, Ephesians 1.13, which tells believers, when you heard the gospel of your salvation and believed in Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It's good news. The Spirit dwells in us as believers. Because, here's the catch, this is good news because it means our eternal security. So I used to work at an ice cream store, and we had this big, burly manager, and we always got on to him because he would seal up any jar that he had as tight as humanly possible. And everybody else would come and try to open the jar, but we like couldn't compete with his anaconda-like grip that would just seal these up. We couldn't compete with his strength. And Ephesians here says that believers are sealed with the Spirit. So if it's God who seals believers with the Spirit, there's no way you're competing with him to somehow break that seal. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, and nobody's breaking that. And again, in John 14, it's saying the same truth. The Spirit will be with the disciples forever. He will be with those who trust in Christ forever. This isn't coming from like some questionable source. It's coming from Jesus. Literally, the truth. He cannot lie. It shows us that no one who trusts in Christ and loves Christ will be separated from God and His love and His peace. If you believe in Christ and your love and obedience demonstrate that, you can rest secure in the sweet truth of the Spirit dwelling with you forever. You have that unshakable confidence that you will be with God forever, not because of your strength, but because of the Spirit in you. And if you're a genuine believer in Christ here, and you wrestle with doubts about your faith, about your salvation, about your eternal security, find comfort by looking to the Spirit The Spirit is the one who holds you. His grip never fails. And the promise of Christ will never fail. He has said the Spirit will be with you forever. And for all of the brothers and sisters in Christ here today, don't just be confident in your salvation and eternal security through the Spirit. Rejoice in it. Praise God. We're not left to keep the Spirit as if He's some fair-weather friend or like middle school girlfriend that you can't ever keep. No, the Spirit will be with us forever. I wasn't planning on saying that, but it just slipped out. Uh, A lot of times we feel like it's up to us to keep the Spirit in us, to maintain our eternal security. 
But Christ has said, the Spirit will be with you forever. The Spirit is the one who holds us. And so I hope that gives you confidence and joy and your eternal security. Through the Spirit in us, we have hope and peace with God forever. All right, so if you love Christ, His leaving and the Spirit's coming is good news because the Spirit will dwell in you forever. And second... In verses 18 through 26, we'll see the Spirit will show you Christ. That's verses 18 through 26, so this is our longest point, just so that you're aware. Look down at verse 18. Jesus says to the disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. So Jesus is talking to his disciples about how after the resurrection, he will come and see them. He won't show himself to the whole world, but he will show himself to the disciples. And it's during that time after the resurrection that Jesus, that the disciples will understand that Jesus is in the Father, meaning he's united to the Father. He's one with the Father, equal with the Father. And it's also during that time that the disciples are going to understand that Jesus is in them, that they are united to Christ by their faith. This is the wonderful news that his resurrection and life means our resurrection and life, which is just what we were singing about with Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. Jesus' resurrection means we will be raised. And I could preach a whole sermon on this, but I don't have time. And so we're going to keep going because the disciples seeing Jesus physically after the resurrection is just a picture of them seeing him spiritually. And so look down at verse 21. Jesus continues, Whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Now, twice here, Jesus mentions the love the Father has for believers. Because all of the blessings that we're talking about in this chapter flow from the love of God. It's not like God the Father is on some like float at a parade and he's just throwing out candy to all the little people below. No, he loves them and his gifts flow out of his love for them. And of course the father loves these believers because they love his son. This summer, Tessa and I went to visit her grandpa in Michigan and he absolutely adores our three children. He played with them. He showered them with gifts. He spent as much time with them as he could. And Tessa and I left that trip feeling so much love for her grandfather. And the main reason was because of the love he had for our sons. And it's the same with the Heavenly Father. He loves to see people love his son. 
And he showers them with love and his presence and his blessing. And one of the greatest blessings he gives to those who love Jesus, verse 22 says, is that Jesus will manifest himself to them. The word manifest here is even stronger than the word see. Uh, this same word is used in the Greek translation of Exodus thirty-three eighteen, where Moses said to the Lord, please show me your glory. It's that same word. This word is used about the revealing of glory and divinity. So it's actually good news Jesus is going because that means he will be manifested to them. It's not until after the resurrection and ultimately the coming of the Spirit that the disciples truly see Jesus' glory and divinity. Earlier in the chapter, he's teaching about his true identity as the way, the truth, and the life. But here he's saying, you need the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to be with you and in you for these truths to seep into your mind and your heart. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says something similar about the revealing of God to believers. It says, We all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. But Paul clarifies, how is it that this happens? He says, For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It's by the Spirit that the glory of Christ is shown and that we are transformed to be like Him. So again, it's incredible news that the Spirit is dwelling in us because that means He will show us Christ. Without the Spirit, we're spiritually blind, but with Him, we see Christ like never before. But I feel like I need to take a moment and point out this doesn't happen for everyone. Jesus says the world will not see him, and he will only manifest himself to the true believers who love him. So the other Judas, the one who unfortunately shares the same name as Judas Iscariot, he speaks up and he was shocked as he probably was hoping for Jesus to establish some earthly kingdom and show everybody who he was, he's shocked and he asked, how is it that you'll manifest yourself to us and not to the world? That word in Greek, not, is very emphatic. It's like it's in all caps. Not to the world? But Jesus doubles down on it here. Look at it. He says, only those who love him and keep his word will have God dwell in them and with them, not the unbelieving world. And this is sobering because Jesus may be talking about some of you in here today. And the answer is not for you just to try harder to love and obey Christ. No, love and obedience to God is not the fuel of your salvation. It's like the dipstick. Jesus is the way of salvation, and you must trust in Him to be saved. But the message of the Father and the Son is very clear. If you don't love Jesus, or sorry, it's very clear you, that you don't love Jesus if you don't keep His word. In the South, and especially around Christmas time, so many would say, Jesus? Yeah, I love Jesus. But all the while, They're refusing to obey any of his commands. So what about you? Do you only obey Christ's commands when it's convenient to you? 
Now, I know some here have overly sensitive consciences. I'm, I'm not talking about perfection. Please hear me. I'm not saying that. But if you don't even have a spiritual pulse, if you are inspecting and you pull out the dipstick of your life and you look for obedience to Christ and there's nothing there, Jesus and God the Father are saying that's because you don't love Jesus and you don't have life. Because you're not united to the life, to Jesus through faith in Him. So instead of trying harder to produce this on your own, I would just encourage you, go back to last week's message about Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Believe in Him. He is the way to salvation. And if you repent and put your faith in Christ, He will save you. He will change you. He will give His Spirit to dwell in you. And all of these blessings that we're talking about today will apply to you. But if you don't love Jesus... They don't apply to you. If you're not a genuine follower of Christ that shows it in obedience and love, these do not apply to you. So I pray that that will motivate you to respond. And I'd love to talk to you about it more. Again, this is supposed to be helping you evaluate if you truly are a believer in Christ. And so if you want to talk more, if you want a pastor Jeff or I to come and help you think through evidence in your life or maybe a lack of evidence in your life, we would love to do that. But respond to this. It should be concerning to you if you look and see no love for Christ in your life. But again, looking back down at verse 25, Jesus continues to talk to those who love him, to the true believers who love him, about how they will have their eyes opened to the truth. He says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the order is that Jesus speaks the words of truth. The Father sends the Spirit in Jesus' name. And you might remember we talked about that phrase, in Jesus' name, last week, pointing out how we only come to the Father through Jesus and His finished work on the cross for us. And it's the same idea here. We only receive the Spirit through Jesus and His finished work for us. So, again, Jesus speaks, the Father sends the Spirit in the name of Christ, and the Spirit teaches and reminds believers of the truth Jesus has taught. Again, the Gospel of John is a wonderful place to learn about the wonderful truth of the Trinity. Here you can see all three persons of the Trinity working in oneness and harmony. And as they act on our behalf, you see that the individual persons revealed here, they're all working so that we will know Jesus and the truth he taught. But a lot of times I hear the Spirit spoken of as if there's like some competition going on between the persons of the Trinity. I hear that, maybe you've heard this too, that Baptists are all about Jesus instead of the Spirit. As if you have to pick one or the other. 
And I say, no, if we are all about Jesus, it's because the Spirit has led us there. The Spirit is sent in the name of Christ. The Spirit shows us Christ and teaches His Word. So don't buy into anything that says these are opposed, as if the Spirit is off doing His own thing. No, if you are lifting Jesus high and teaching His Word, you're doing exactly what the Spirit does, which means you're walking in the Spirit. But all the same, we shouldn't neglect to talk about the work of the Spirit in our lives and in the lives of believers. And it's incredible what He does. You can just see the effect of the Spirit in the lives of the twelve disciples. How on earth did these 11 knuckleheads go out and change the world and understand Christ with such depth and insight? I was just reading First and Second Peter, where Peter comes and describes Jesus with this beauty and depth, and he writes about the morning star rising in our hearts. And the whole time I was reading it, I was like, who is this guy? (laughs) Like, where is the guy from the Gospels? The guy that Jesus rebuked by saying, get behind me, Satan. Where's the Peter who one minute said, you will never wash my feet. And the next minute, he's like overcompensating and saying, no, wash my head and my hands. Where is that guy? And the answer is, he's still there. He's very much there, but he finally understands. He has the Spirit dwelling in him, teaching him the truth of Christ, showing him Christ. And we can trust Peter's letters and all the writings of the New Testament because it's the Spirit who reminds the authors of the truth that Jesus taught. He teaches them the truth. So trust the Scriptures which are fully inspired by the Spirit. And I would also challenge you, you need to see your dependence too. Not just on the writing side of the New Testament, but on our reading side of the New Testament. We need the Spirit's help. We need Him to manifest Christ to us. To teach us the truth that Christ has said. And bring back to our memory what He has said. Without His help, we are blind. And so I challenge you this week, don't be arrogant. But remember to stop and pray before you read Scripture. Ask the Spirit to teach you the truth and to bring it back into your mind throughout the day when you need it most. So again, if, if you love Christ, the Spirit's coming is good news because He will dwell in you forever. We just saw the Spirit will show you Christ in verses 18 through 26. And third point, the Spirit will give you peace. In, verses, in verse 27. Look down at verse 27. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. And the word peace here that he uses is closely tied to the Hebrew word shalom. Maybe you've heard that. The ESV study Bible says this word doesn't mean the absence of conflict. It actually refers positively to the idea of blessing that comes from a right relationship with God, of wholeness and welfare. And Jesus doesn't give that peace like the world does. 
You may have heard of the term Pax Romana. This is often used about this time of history, the Roman peace. But that peace came through a conquering sword where enemies were extinguished by whatever means necessary. And even still, it was a flimsy peace. The Roman government might be able to provide the absence of war, but they could never bring shalom, true peace. And it should not surprise us that immediately after mentioning the sending of the Spirit, Jesus mentions the giving of peace. I mean, one of the fruits of the Spirit is peace. And even more than that, since shalom is the idea of a right relationship with God, what better picture of a right relationship with God could there be than the Spirit dwelling in us, showing us Christ, leading us to Him? And I think if we're here today, we long for this type of peace. I read just this last week that one-third of adults in 2023 struggled with anxiety and depression. And I actually don't think our church is any exception to this. We are anxious about our health, about our finances, about politics or the world at large, what people think about us. And our hearts are troubled with loneliness. This is so true during the holidays. We're lonely. And we can have days or weeks or months that feel empty and joyless. And we long for shalom, for wholeness and blessing. But we look for the answers in all the wrong places. We view this peace as if it's something that we can attain through medicine or therapists or entertainment. I'm not saying those are bad things. They can even be helpful but they cannot ultimately deliver shalom, peace. But Jesus offers peace in a way totally different than the world. So much of what the world offers is a band-aid, not a solution. They're just trying to help you get by, but Jesus offers a peace that doesn't cope with the brokenness of your heart and your life, but actually comes and resolves it. He offers the solution to our deepest problem, our broken hearts, and our broken relationship with God. Jesus is the one who can restore that. And what's more, Jesus sends the Spirit to dwell in us, who then produces peace in us. It's not outside of us, but flowing out of our hearts. Jesus alone can bring peace with God and peace within So I don't know what anxiety or brokenness you're struggling with today. But I do know the ultimate hope is in Christ and Him alone. So if you have anxiety attacks or marriage conflicts, eating disorders, addiction, don't ignore the spiritual side of those struggles. Look for the peace that Christ offers And your pastors would love to help you think through what the peace of Christ could look like in your specific situation. Your Bibles, there's so many good resources, but please don't just go to the world for something it cannot ultimately provide. So we saw, if you love Christ, His leaving and the Spirit's coming is good news. First, because the Spirit will dwell in you, 
The Spirit will show you peace or show you Christ, and then the Spirit will give you peace. And our last point, Jesus, it's good news that He left and the Spirit came because in that, Jesus demonstrated perfect obedience for you. And it's natural that our talk about the Spirit would lead us to talking about the glory of Christ. So look down at verse 28. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Jesus has been saying again and again to the disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And here he wants to be clear, he keeps the commands of the Father. And the whole world can see from that that he loves the Father. So that's the big picture. But again, he begins by actually rebuking the disciples. They've been all gloomy because they have been thinking only about themselves. But if they had thought of Jesus and where he is going, they would have rejoiced. It reminds me of a conversation I had with a husband recently who looked worn down. He told me his wife had went and taken a trip to Europe. And I said, that's great. What a wonderful opportunity. And he responded, yeah, it's great. He left me here. She left me here with all the kids and the laundry. It's just great. He he wasn't rejoicing because he was only thinking about himself. And in our passage, Jesus' departure is good news for Jesus because he's going to the Father. He's going to enjoy the sweet and intimate relationship with the Father that heaven affords. And the disciples should have been rejoicing with Jesus over that good news. But they're only thinking about themselves. But also... Jesus says this is good news because the Father is greater than I. I really want to clarify here because a lot of people will take this phrase as if Jesus is just saying the opposite of everything else that the Gospel of John has been communicating, that Jesus is equal with the Father in divinity. But no, let's be clear. Jesus is equal with the Father He shares the exact same nature as the Father, so they are equal in divinity. So, in what way could the Father be greater than the Son? This question is actually, this is the perfect time to answer this question, because it's Christmas time. We celebrate how the divine Son of God came and took on a human body and nature, and He was born in a manger. He had to be fed. He had to sleep. He even got sick. These are all things that are never and will never be true of God the Father. But these are things that are true of God the Son in His humanity, in His human body. According to the weakness of His human body, the Father was greater than the Son. But why does Jesus bring this up here? How is this related to the good news of His return to heaven? I think John seventeen five gives us a little bit of a hint. There Jesus prays, 
Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So he's praying that the same glory that he had for eternity past would return. And Philippians 2, 9 through 11 clarifies this even more. And it should be on the screen. Jesus is talking about how after, excuse me, Paul is talking about how after Jesus humbling through the death on a cross, that, here he writes, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So it's good news that Jesus is going to the Father, because although the Father is greater than him at this moment, according to Jesus' humanity, his time of humbling was coming to an end. And he would be restored to glory and all will bow at his name, is what Philippians 2 says. So Jesus rebukes his disciples for not rejoicing at this good news for Jesus. But he also wants to clarify that this next day of his death on the cross, that's an act of obedience. It's not an act of defeat. In verse 30, he says, The ruler of the world has no claim on me. And again, when you hear world, I hope you remember, we're thinking of the sinful society, though that group of people who live without faith in Christ. Who is the ruler of that world? Satan. And he has no claim on Jesus. Maybe you've seen the movie or read the books uh, from C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The witch in this story had a claim on Edmund because he was sinful and deserved judgment. But when Aslan the lion comes and takes Edmund's place, it was not because the witch had overpowered him or had any legal right over him. He made it very clear he came willingly to sacrifice himself in Edmund's place. And it's the same with Jesus. Satan had no claim on Jesus. At Jesus' death, there's not a single sin that Satan could accuse him of. Try as he might. And what's more, this was the plan of God the Father. And so Jesus was exemplifying perfect obedience. From the manger to the cross, Jesus always did the will and command of God the Father. And again, true obedience flows out of a heart of love. And so in this, the world can see that Jesus loves the Father. And he perfectly obeys him. We are full of failings. But Jesus perfectly obeys. We worship Christ this Christmas because he perfectly loved and obeyed the Father like no other man or woman ever has. This Christmas we sing and rejoice in the humility and the love and the righteousness and obedience of Christ. So come, let us adore him. And in conclusion, this Christmas... I hope that you also think of the good news that we've been talking about. That Christ has ascended and the Spirit has come to live in all who love Christ. So often we hear, I wish I could have been one of the shepherds on the hillside, you know? But brothers and sisters, don't wish that. 
Those shepherds didn't have the Spirit dwelling in them, but you do. You have something far better than seeing with physical eyes. You have seen spiritually. The Spirit has come to dwell in you forever. The Spirit revealing Christ to you. The Spirit giving you peace. And you have the full picture of the perfect obedience of Christ. So rejoice and find comfort in that truth today. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your perfect example of obedience. Spirit, help us see it. We need you. I pray that this week, just as we have been filled with the Spirit, we would walk in the Spirit, that we would be moved by you to see Christ, to find the comfort of our eternal security, to have peace. Help us find it in you. We pray that you'd fill us with these fruits of the Spirit and that you would show us Christ. And even now, Spirit, as we come to the Lord's Supper, we need your help even now to show us Christ. Show us the glory of Christ today through the supper, through the word and the singing. And we pray that Christ would receive the glory for it. We pray all this in his name. Amen.